Well, thanks very much, Robert, for a very generous introduction. Uh, can I thank all of you for uh, still being uh, here at the end of a week-long conference? Uh, to be awake and engaged after lunch on the Friday session is uh, no small achievement in itself. Uh, and I'm looking forward uh, to uh, being, being here as we see the moment of the owl handing, being handed over to the Melbourne team. Uh, can I acknowledge the traditional owners, the Turbul and Jagera people, recognise all First Nations people present, uh, and commit myself to the implementation of the Uluru Statement from the Heart, which begins with voting yes on October 14th. I note too that the Australian Evaluation Society supports a voice to Parliament. In the powerful words of AES President Kiri Parata, it's been too long that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples have been calling for their voices to be heard. First Nations Australians deserve better and their voices matter. I'm proud that the AES has elevated the voices of First Nations people and will continue its commitment to quality evaluation that impacts positively for First Nations communities. Constitutional recognition will benefit all Australians as the flow-on effects of this much-anticipated change are realised. And that's not a new focus for the Australian Evaluation Society. In preparing my talk, I went back to the earliest annual report on your website from 20 years ago. And that shows that in the 2002-2003 year, the AES set three priority areas, one of which was Indigenous evaluation. Anona Armstrong, who founded the AES in 1982, has spoken about the importance of Indigenous evaluation to the society. I'm really pleased to be speaking with you today about the Australian Centre for Evaluation, uh, following on Suzanne Harry's uh, presentation. Uh, my goal is to give you a sense of the philosophy underpinning the centre, how we intend it to operate and collaborate, and our hope for how it will contribute to the much broader evaluation landscape in Australia. The best way to sum up our approach to policy evaluation is that we're trying to take lessons from health, and in particular, how rigorous evaluation has changed medical practices, saving money and saving lives. Although hospital dramas like Grey's Anatomy and House are centred around star doctors, the real story of medicine today is of good evidence driving out bad theories. No area of medicine epitomises this shift better than the radical mastectomy. In the 1880s, US surgeon William Halstead formed the view that breast cancer was most effectively treated by excising large portions of the patient's tissue. Previous operations, Halstead argued, had been too timid. Observing that patients often relapsed after surgery that removed only the tumour, Halstead advocated removing considerable amounts of surrounding tissue. Halstead's surgery removed the pectoralis muscle, uh, the muscle, pectoralis major, the muscle that moves the shoulder and hand. He called it the radical mastectomy, drawing on the Latin meaning of radical to mean root. In The Emperor of All Maladies, Siddhartha Mukherjee describes how Halstead and his students took the procedure further and further. They began to cut into the chest, through the collarbone, into the neck. Some removed ribs. They sought out lymph nodes and claimed they had cleaned out the cancer. Women who endured these operations were left permanently disfigured, often with gaping holes in their chests. In some cases, they were unable to properly move an arm. In other instances, their shoulders permanently hunched forward. Recovery could take years. 
But Halstead was unrepentant, referring to less aggressive surgery as mistaken kindness. Halstead persuaded others, not through his data, which was shaky, but through the force of his rhetoric and personality. He was supremely self-confident, perhaps fuelled through his cocaine addiction, and he belittled his critics for their faint-heartedness. Radical mastectomies, he acknowledged, would disfigure patients. But these war wounds were the price, he said, of winning the battle. Yet whether a patient survived breast cancer depended not on how much tissue was removed, but whether the cancer had metastasised and spread through her body. If it had not metastasised, a more precise operation to remove just the cancer would have been equally effective. If it had metastasised, then a radical mastectomy would still fail to remove it. In 1967, Bernard Fisher became chair of the National Surgical Adjuvant Breast Project at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. Fisher was struck by the lack of evidence supporting the radical mastectomy. He became interested in the mystery of metastasis and the growing use of clinical trials in medicine. No matter how venerable the clinician, he argued, experience was no substitute for evidence. So Fisher began recruiting patients to take, place in the take part in a clinical trial that would test the impact of the radical mastectomy by comparing the surgery against a more moderate alternative, the lumpectomy, that involved removing only the cancerous tissue. Fisher's randomised trial faced major hurdles. The first was to persuade women to participate in a trial in which randomisation would determine whether the surgeon would remove a lump or their entire breast. The second was to persuade surgeons to refer patients to the trial. Having been trained in radical surgery, many surgeons felt that a lumpectomy was unethical and were hostile to the trial. They flatly refused to refer patients to a trial that might see patients receiving anything other than a radical mastectomy. But Fisher was helped by the burgeoning feminist movement. As activist Cynthia Pearson noted, the women's health movement began talking about mastectomy as one of the examples of sexism in medical care in the United States. In the face of opposition in the United States, Fisher's breast cancer surgery trial had to be expanded to Canada to get sufficient sample size. Eventually, it covered 1,765 patients who were randomised into three groups, radical mastectomy, simple mastectomy and surgery followed by radiation. The results were finally published in 1981. They showed that there were no differences in mortality between the three groups. <coughs> the women who had undergone radical mastectomies had suffered considerably from the surgery, yet they had not benefited in terms of survival. Fisher's randomised trial changed how surgeons treat breast cancer, but it took a century. Between the 1880s and 1980s, around half a million women underwent radical mastectomies, an unnecessary surgical treatment. Randomised trials are valuable in instances where experts have strong views. In the case of breast cancer treatment, it took data to cut through ideology. An advantage of randomised trials is they identify a clear counterfactual 
what would have happened without the intervention? And that can be especially important in instances where people self-select into different treatments. To see this, suppose we wanted to conduct an experiment on the impact of caffeine on whether people stay awake during a talk by a politician on a Friday afternoon at the end of a stimulating conference. A randomised trial of this kind might involve a barista producing both regular coffees and decaf coffees. We'd pick the coffee blends and so that the decaf and the regular taste as similar as possible. I realise that statement is anathema to some coffee drinkers in the audience. <laughs> Each time a person walks up to the coffee stand, the barista tosses the coin. Heads, you get a regular coffee. Tails, you get a decaf coffee. The law of large numbers tells us if we did this experiment with everyone in the room, we'd end up with roughly half in the heads group and half in the tails group. Before anyone's taken a sip of their coffee, the heads and tails group would be similar in every way. With large numbers of people, we can reasonably expect the groups will include a similar number of men and women, a similar number of junior and senior researchers, a similar number of morning larks and night owls. As a result, if we observe differences in alertness between the two groups, we know it must be due to the caffeine. We could conclude from this that caffeine keeps people awake, at least for the kinds of people in the experiment. What would have happened without randomisation? What if we allowed everyone to ask the barista either for regular or decaf and then track the alertness of both groups? How might an observational study have turned out differently? In this case, an observational study would be plagued by selection effects. Those who chose the caffeinated drink might have been the kinds of people who prioritised alertness. Or maybe caffeine consumers were extra tired after a big night. Without a credible counterfactual, the observational data wouldn't have told us the true effect of caffeine on performance. We would have learned a lot about the kinds of people who choose caffeinated drinks, but very little about the true impact of caffeine. This problem with observational studies isn't just an academic curio. In medicine, researchers using observational data had long observed that moderate alcohol drinkers tended to be healthier than non-drinkers or heavy drinkers. This led many doctors to advise their patients that a drink a day might be good for your health. Yet the latest meta-analysis, published this year in the Journal of the American Medical Association, now concludes that this was a selection effect. In some studies, the population of non-drinkers included former alcoholics who'd gone sober. Compared with non-drinkers, light drinkers turn out to be healthier on many dimensions, including weight, exercise and diet. Studies that use random differences in genetic predisposition to alcohol find no evidence that light drinking is good for your health. A daily alcoholic beverage isn't the worst thing you can do, but it's not extending your life. That problem extends to just about every study you've ever read that compares outcomes for people who choose to consume one kind of food or beverage with those who make different consumption choices. Health writers Peter Atiyah and Bill Gifford point out that our food choices and eating habits are unfathomably complex, so observational studies are almost always hopelessly confounded. A better approach is that adopted by the United States National Institutes of Health, which is conducting randomised nutrition studies. 
These require volunteers to live in a dormitory-style setting where their diets are randomly changed from week to week. Nutritional randomised studies are costlier than nutritional epidemiology, but they have one big advantage. We can believe the results. They inform us about causal impacts, not mere correlations. Indeed, a lovely experiment with mice has shown how problematic nutritional epidemiology can be. The study, led by Kasuki Ajima, starts off with a randomised experiment on calorie restriction and longevity. By randomly varying the amount of calories given to different groups of mice, the researchers show that mice that are fed a calorie-restricted diet tend to live longer. This result replicates a well-established finding. Calorie restriction boosts longevity. But next, the researchers looked within those mice that had been allowed to eat as much as they wanted. Within that group, what was the relationship between calorie consumption and longevity? Now the result flipped. The mice that ate more calories lived longer, probably because they were doing more exercise or had faster metabolisms. The bottom line is the observational study produced exactly the wrong result. As Peter Atiyah and Bill Gifford's work has observed, the complexity of what we choose to eat can confound any studies about the true effect of food on health. In establishing the Australian Centre for Evaluation, we won't only conduct randomised trials, but randomised trials will be an important component of the work of the centre, which is why I've focused my remarks on them until this point. A few basics about the centre. The Australian Centre for Evaluation will be located in the Australian Treasury and will partner with other government agencies to conduct rigorous evaluations. The centre receives funding of around $2 million a year and employs around 14 staff. Its work, its work will be conducted within a careful ethical framework, including we are as rigor, ensuring we are as rigorous about issues of ethics as we are about issues of causality. The Australian Centre for Evaluation won't conduct all of the evaluations in government. Given its size, that would be impossible. At present, the volume of external evaluations is over $50 million a year and many agencies have their own in-house evaluation teams. The Australian Centre for Evaluation will partner on a modest number of flagship evaluations and work to build evaluation capacity across the public service. An important part of the process will be to ensure that evaluations aren't unnecessarily expensive. Over recent years, the response rate to government surveys has fallen, while the quality of administrative data has risen. In that environment, we're looking for opportunities to see how evaluations can make better use of data that's already held by the government, while maintaining strict privacy protections. Randomised trials need not take decades and need not cost tens of millions of dollars. Low-cost randomised trials can provide rapid insights at a modest cost. The Australian Centre for Evaluation will be characterised by its openness. The choice of name is deliberate. We want this to be a centre for high quality evaluation nationally. That means that the centre will be open to engaging as appropriate with states and territories, with non-profits and philanthropic foundations, and with evaluation experts in the private sector and academia. We're all on the evaluation journey together. 
and engagement will help to build the nation's evaluation capacity. As part of that engagement, I'm pleased to announce that the Australian Centre for Evaluation's website is now live at evaluation.treasury.gov.au. Feel free to now pull out your tablet and smartphone and ignore the remainder of my talk in favour of adding that website to your bookmarks, emailing it to your friend and posting it on your social media challenges. <laughs> Charles. Uh, if ACE website is trending on the platform formerly known as Twitter, we'll know our work as evaluation nerds is done today. So I began this talk by focusing on how randomised trials have helped transform medicine. While randomised trials of pharmaceuticals have been commonplace since the 1950s, randomised surgical trials are still relatively rare. Likewise, the area of randomised nutritional trials is still in its infancy. In these fields and others, high quality evidence is helping to dis displace misplaced dogma. As the saying goes, in God we trust, all others must bring data. Over coming years, I'm curious in the extent to which developments in medicine may help us in developing policy. Following phase one safety trials, health researchers typically conduct two phases of clinical trials. Phase two trials on a relatively small population and phase three trials on a larger population. The notion of replicating the evaluation before going to market is highly relevant in social science. Over the past decade, the replication crisis in social science has seen a number of high-profile findings debunked. Single studies with surprising findings published in top journals have had too much impact on how we view the world. We need to do a better job of building in replication in social science, just as phase two and phase three trials do in the clinical world. Another feature of the health evidence ecosystem that could be adopted in policy is the notion of the living evidence review. A decade ago, Julian Elliott, Professor of Evidence Synthesis at Cochrane Australia, developed the notion of a living evidence review, a systematic review that's updated in real time as new studies are published. When COVID hit, Elliott worked with clinicians and researchers from around Australia to produce the National COVID-19 Clinical Evidence Task Force a set of living evidence syntheses and recommendations that were updated every week to collate high quality evidence on everything from how best to treat new coronavirus variants to the impact of masks on the risk of transmission. In policy too, the availability of living evidence syntheses would help decision makers identify the most recent, most relevant research and avoid the danger of being swayed by a single low quality study. Strengthening the national evidence infrastructure so that all programs and policies are rigorously assessed for their effectiveness and impact, and evalu evaluation evidence is routinely synthesised and made publicly available, will take time. We've taken a critically important first step in establishing the Australian Centre for Evaluation and look forward to working with all of you to see high quality evaluation evidence placed at the heart of policy design and decision making. Thanks very much. <laughs>